well, I was born and raised in Italy, but I am myself the daughter of an immigrant. So my mother had come from Sweden and settled in Italy and married an Italian. So growing up in Italy, I actually had a very strong bond with Sweden and spent time in Sweden with my grandparents. And I think that when you are raised with two languages and two cultures, then your desire and your curiosity for anything else is increased. So I always knew that my life was not going to be in Italy. I always knew that I wanted to explore new places and new countries. Um, and then as soon as I uh, graduated from university, I just, I just left and I, and I never went back. You are listening to Concrete Pastures Podcast. I am Nancy Mlemoisisi. Being an immigrant has been one of the most challenging and extraordinary experiences of my life. It inspired me to create a space that allows for myself and others to share our stories as we deconstruct the world's view of immigrant status. We unlock the joys, the laughs, and the bravery that being a dreamer brings. So subscribe and stay a while as we dive into today's episode. I am so excited to introduce our next guest. It's such an honor to have her on our platform. We met on LinkedIn. I was inspired by her story and the positive change she's making in our community, in the diaspora community. Her name is Camila Skipper. She is the CEO of one of Australia's most creative and celebrated social enterprises, The Social Outfit. The Social Outfit is a fashion label with a difference, created to provide employment and training in the fashion industry to people from refugee and new immigrant communities. Camila not only leads all of the Social Outfit's operations, she also supports her employees by mentoring and guiding them to better integrate in Australia. Prior to leading Social Outfits, Camila was the founding director of the Institute of Economics and Peace, IEP, which she led for 10 years. She started her career at the United Nations, where until 2008, she was the chief of the UN Office for Partnerships within the executive office of the UN Secretary General. In this role, she advised on the management of the U.S. 1 billion partnerships between the UN and Ted Turner UN's foundation and assisted in overseeing the activities of the UN Democracy Fund. Welcome, Camilla. Congratulations on all your achievements. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, thank you so much for having me uh, and for finding me and reaching out. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. It's a sunny day here in Australia. Let me apologize just at the start. I'm, I'm in a very busy workplace, so hopefully there's going to be no interruption of people. But in case there are, if you see people in the background, don't worry about it. I'm at work and it's, um, yeah, uh, the middle of the day here. 
I know. It's Thursday here, 9 p.m. I'm grateful for my kids for giving me this time to to inspire our audience together. <laughs> I look forward so, to our chat. Yes. So you are no stranger to a life of an immigrant. You were born in Italy. Could you just walk us all um, around on how life was a little bit in Italy yes. and how you came to be an immigrant around the world? Yes, um, sure. Well, I was born and raised in Italy, but I am myself the daughter of an immigrant. So my mother had come from Sweden and settled in Italy and married an Italian. So growing up in Italy, I actually had a very strong bond with Sweden and spent time in Sweden with my grandparents. And I think that when you are raised with two languages and two cultures, then your desire and your curiosity for anything else is increased. So I always knew that my life was not going to be in Italy. I always knew that I wanted to explore new places and new countries. Um, and then as soon as I uh, graduated from university, I just, I just left and I, and I never went back. Wow. <laughs> so when you left Italy, what was your first place? My first place was actually Kenya. Um, I spent a year uh, doing anthropological and ethnological research in Kenya, um, observing the impact of tourism on the traditional cultures of the Maasai. And from doing that incredibly fascinating work, um, living in a country where you feel the sun, you know when the sun comes up, up and you, when it goes down, because when it goes down, you go to sleep because normally there's there's no other light. I moved to Norway um, to continue the research into Africa, but in a completely different environment. And I remember thinking, how can people live with so little sun um, up here? Uh, but my dream had always been to work at the United Nations. And so I started applying very early on in my career. Um, and so finally, after one year in Norway, I was accepted and I made the big move to New York, where again, I was like, oh, and now I'm in a place where you don't even see the sun or the moon because there's buildings all around you. <laughs> um, and so by the time I was in my, I think, 26 years old, I was I was working at the United Nations in New York. Wow. How was your experience at the United Nations? Because I know you made a lot of um, oh, a lot of changes, a lot of impact over there. Look, it was a time when the United Nations was changing because it was having a wonderful leadership of the then Secretary General Kofi Annan, who had a very different vision for the organization and wanted to open it up to not only working with governments, um, but also with private sector. Um, and I worked mostly on how do you engage the private sector and the private wealth into trying to improve the world. I, I loved my time at the United Nations. And I must say, when I think back, the things that I loved most was the fact that on a daily basis, I was interacting with people from all different backgrounds and cultures. So it brings me back to that original desire of exploring and learning and being just inspired by people that come from different backgrounds. Although one thing that did bother me to some extent at the UN is that while it's so very international, 
it's all people who have had certain opportunities and therefore come from certain backgrounds to be able to have the level of degrees and studies and connections and networks to be able to land at the United Nations. Um, So it's not truly democratic as it should be, which is very, very hard to achieve, obviously. Um, But that was something I was was missing. In other words, you just feel like you're together with a group of people from all over the world, but who are all fairly privileged. Got it. I saw a YouTube video of you doing my research of you. You were talking about peace and it's relevant to what we're going to be talking about. Why is peace important for us? Oh, because peace underpins everything. We're not going to have a future unless we learn to live in peace um, and reap the benefits of not having to deal with the consequences of violence. And What I realized when I was at the United Nations was how much everybody who talks about peace actually is talking about violence. So we were all talking about how do you stop a conflict? How how do you rebuild after a conflict? What are the actions you take? So I, I met this philanthropist while I was working at the UN who had this idea of saying, can't we turn this around instead of studying violence and what leads to violence why don't we study peace and what builds peace and it's similar to what happened in the medical science right we should always study disease and how to cure it but when we started looking at a healthy body and how to sustain a healthy body we make great advances in the medical science can we do the same for peace, which is why we then, and I moved here to Australia to head this new organization called the Institute for Economics and Peace that Mm. was really dedicated and exists to this day, and they have an office in New York as well. Um, It's dedicated to the study of peace, to really help countries learn what it takes to remain peaceful rather than having to fall into conflict and then help countries rebuild after the conflict. So how can we prevent it somehow? Um, and, and the argument behind the importance of peace was that it, it facilitates everything else. Number one, our own lives and, and happiness. But there are a lot of economic benefits that come by not having to spend money on violence and on the consequences of that violence. As we know, as you probably can see every day in the United States, you know, violence Violence is costly. Uh, Peace is beneficial also from an economic point of view. Now, that shouldn't be the leverage. We should care about peace just because it's it's just a better way to live. Mm -hmm. But it's an additional argument to to bring the economic perspective into it. So, you know already, I'm from Zambia. A lot of the countries that are our neighbours are in civil war. Let's say Congo, for instance. And there have been civil war since 1996. Peace has an attachment to money. Yes. In your own opinion and through your studies, how can we avoid that even going forward? <laughs> it's, it's... Yes, yes. And I, I think, you know, our research was showing that it is about investing in the underpinning structures that will help change that because yes of course there are people who benefit from violence mm-hmm. and there's money associated in that war and that violence but the the generality of the community 
does not benefit from it. In fact, we can see that some of the countries that have been victims of violence are actually the ones with the lowest GDP. There is no economic growth because they are embroiled in the conflict. Mm -hmm. Um, But how do we convince the other countries, the countries that have the finances and the resources, the countries that come to the United Nations to say, we need to invest in these elements to build peace. And one of the key elements that I care so much about is social cohesion. And our research shows that it doesn't actually matter how violent or peaceful a country is today. I can be living in Sydney, which is a very, very peaceful town in a very peaceful country. But Mm. if we don't build that social resilience within the society, if there will be an economic shock, say a recession or an environmental shock, say a massive earthquake, the country will be not resilient to, to that. So I think that's, that's the key. It's like we never know when there's going to be a, an event that might generate violence. How do we build the structures within that society to be able to respond peacefully? Why is it that when there was an economic an enormous economic downturn in Iceland or an enormous earthquake in Japan, the countries were able to deal with it peacefully because they had those structures set in place. How do we build those structures? Because that seems to be the the key. How do we start to build those structures? Like it starts with us as the communities that we are building. So how do we actually build those structures? It it takes time and it takes effort and it's exactly what I've chosen to do. So I decided to leave the Institute for Economics and Peace and leave the research with my colleagues because I really wanted to put in practice to some extent what I was preaching. And if I believe in social cohesion and building this resilience, what I'm doing at the social outfit in a small scale, obviously, but you know, many more, many small scales add up to a big scale is to bring women in disadvantage from many different backgrounds together, together with the Sydney siders. So we can start breaking those barriers and building those networks so that we get to know each other and care about each other and support each other and start building that net that is going to keep us together in the face of anything. So on my daily work, I make sure that the women that are engaged in the social outfit all come from as many different countries and cultures as possible Mm. so that they share meals and they share a language and they share their work and they're empowered to work. And that will trickle down because we work with women to the families, to the children, to the husbands, to the societies. And that is one of many steps that we need to take that in my mind, really will help build a more peaceful society here in Sydney. Yeah, I know you work with uh, refugee women. Yes. And uh, what was the core reason for you to um, build this organization to help the women? Um, I'm a migrant woman. I'm a migrant woman by choice. I had the choice to stay in my country. I chose to leave um, but I could always go back and yet 
it's not easy. It's not easy to settle in a new country. It's not easy to make new friends and feel accepted. It's a journey which is really difficult. So if I think about a woman who, on the other hand, has not chosen to leave, has had maybe one day or one week to pack up and leave everyone behind, who cannot go back even if she would like to, who might never be able to see her family again, um, and arrives in a country where in the best of days, they make her feel unwelcome. You know, they might give her some social security and some, some benefits, but generally she's made to feel that it'd be better if you didn't come here. Um, I am incredibly passionate to help those women, even with just providing one little glimpse of hope, one smile, one sense of saying, no, you're welcome. We want you here and we'll accompany you a little bit along the journey. You have done so much. You have faced so many barriers. You have been said no so many times. I want to be the place where we can say yes. Yes, you're welcome. You're capable. We'll, you know, we'll teach you and you'll teach us. And that, as a migrant woman, gives me more satisfaction than any handshake with presidents I would have had at the United Nations. Beautiful. When the women arrive, they come directly to you or you go to their, I guess, the refugee camps and get them or how do they find you? Yes. So in Australia, there's, there's, there's no refugee camps, um, but there are different ways in which refugees have arrived. Some are deemed illegal, some are put into detention, some come through the UNHCR list. No, there's many different ways. And, yeah. and there are agencies here whose work is support those refugees. Now, those agencies know of our work very well. So whenever they come across a woman that they think would be fit and right for the kind of uh, things that we offer, they reach out to us. Um, there is also another thing that we have become so well known within the refugee community in Sydney that there's a lot of refugees who refer other refugees. So there's a lot of word of mouth and women who, who, who kind of find us um, in different ways. Um, yeah. So I'm a refugee woman. What type of work do you provide? So first of all, why women and not men? Um, women, because in Australia, it is estimated that only about 20% of refugee and new migrant women are engaged in the workforce. Mm. Humanitarian. So they just don't get jobs for a variety of reasons. You know, it's not very flexible. They might not speak the language. Uh, they have young kids. The husbands are working, so they feel they need to stay at home. Many, many different reasons. But... Ultimately, we know that giving a woman a job is transformational to her, to her family, to her community. Um, and also, you're not going to start integrating in a country unless you come to work. You're not going to start feeling this is home. You're not going to inspire your daughters um, unless you are working. So we decided to offer work to refugee women in fashion because... Lots of refugee women who come to Australia come from countries where they know how to sew. They've had experience in sewing. They had their own sewing machines. Um, so it's something that they can transition into. Uh, also because it's a creative, happy space where we make things with beautiful fabrics and beautiful colors. And in addition, 
your English doesn't need to be great. You can talk with your hands. You can talk with your work. You can you can look at patterns. We can you know. So it's it it was deemed like it was a first good step. So what kind of roles do we offer normally? And the way we started is that we offer women sewing jobs. Depending on where they are, often they need training. We offer free sewing classes at different levels so they can improve. Uh, we have a lot of women, for example, coming from Afghanistan. They know how to sew, but they have never used an electric machine, let alone an industrial machine. It's kind of going from, you know, a horse and cart to driving a Ferrari. So you do need some time to adjust to be able to learn the Ferrari and not not crash. Um, Once we deem that they are good enough, they are offer employment, normally on a fixed term, so they know they have certainty and security in their employment and they come to work. We offer flexible working hours because we know they have kids to drop at school and maybe pick up and it's not always easy. They come to our workroom, which is a very multicultural environment um, where the women make the clothes. But we also have a shop and we offer paid traineeship to young refugee women in our shop. What does that mean? It means that every day the shop is open, we have one young refugee coming in for a shift um, and they normally come for three months. They're paid for their time, it's their first work experience normally, definitely the first work experience in Australia. We teach them everything they need to know about How do you talk to customers? How do you process a sale? How do you pack an online order? Um, And then we help them transition to the next job. Because all of these women are incredibly capable. I mean, they've overcome obstacles that I can't even dream of having to overcome, right? Um, They just need that first little help that first experience on their CV, that building all their confidence, feeling that even if they don't speak the language, they can do it. Um, Feeling that they can improve on the language bit by bit. Um, So that's what we do. Uh, We, in the training program in the shop, the retail training program that we call it now, we have trained over 30 young women so far. And 89% of them have gone on to other ongoing employment after they've trained with us. And these are women that often would have had applied for jobs for years, but not being able to secure any employment. So it works. Just got to give them a little bit of help and then they go and they flourish. Wow. That, that's amazing. That's amazing. Once they're they are settled, do they come back also to help others? Like what? Yes, you know, as I always say, everybody's different. We're dealing with individuals, right? Refugees are not a category. <laughs> Refugees are just a lot of different people mm-hmm. with a lot of different backgrounds and stories and lives and aspirations. So everyone is different. Um, some women stay with us for a long time and progress. So our head sewing teacher, for example, has now been with us for six years. She came as a student. She's improved so much. She wants to stay and she's built up. Um, our head cutter is the same. She lived in a refugee camp camp for over 20 years. Um, so she wasn't used to the main, many things that we are, you know, you, you can picture a refugee camp, right? I mean, we've, we've so um, since she's been here, you know, the main thing I have to do with her is to tell her, please 
don't come at 6 a.m. in the morning. We're not open. You know, she's used to working such long hours and being up. And, and I have to kind of convince her, please take ho- You have paid holidays. You need to stay home. And she, she still wants to come even when she's on holidays. Because she's like, I'm not, what's holidays? I don't know what to do. I want to come. So some women will always remain in the community because what we offer is really a community, a family, a sense of belonging. Um, and some would stay for six months, but then find their feet and decide that they want to work in another area closer to home perhaps or in a completely different field um and life takes them in different directions we're just that first stop for for many so it's a very very big family that is growing and women um are free to be engaging with us as much as they feel they need well no but i can i can imagine um me being an immigrant, the first person that helps you is the person that you get attached to for a very long time. And that's why I ask if they do come back or they stay with you even longer. How is the retail business though? Because I know this is a gift that keeps on giving, but how is the retail business now? The retail business is good, but it's it's always tough. You know, fashion is really a difficult sector. Yes. And you have to be fashionable and we don't really have a fashion designer. We design everything in-house with the women and that's the creative part of it. And we, we have some very loyal and supportive customers, but, you know, we've been trying to grow online, but we don't have the budgets that big brands have. So... You know, while we're probably the only really ethical and sustainable fashion brand out there, if you Google ethical fashion brands, we definitely, you know, won't come up because there's people who pay much more for the algorithm to to have them come up yeah. on top. So mm-hmm. It's tough. You know, I wish we could sell more, but, you know, we have consistently been increasing our sales. So we are on a good on a good trajectory and because we are a charity we don't need to just rely on the sales of the clothes so the sales of the clothes cover you know a, a very substantial part of a budget and then we have grants that we applied for and some government support etc to be able to do all the charitable work that we do that doesn't necessarily generate any revenue um, but it's a beautiful and colorful um, shop that we have um, the other component that you know doesn't relate to migration and refugee but I think it's important to mention is that because we you know we also care about the environment <laughs> um, as everybody should um, we do not use any virgin fabrics in other words we don't get anything added to the world that doesn't already exist to make our fashion the 80 percent of what we use is actually excess fat you know fabric and trims and buttons and zippers you name it that the fashion industry discards before even ever having used it so it's completely new but it has been purchased by someone else and they don't want it anymore because it's not the right color, because they've changed their mind, because they don't think it's going to be fashionable. Um, so we accept all of those donations from local. Obviously, it has to be local brands because we don't want to have to ship things um, across the, the oceans. And they just call us up and then we go out with a van that we rent and, and pick up all their, their waste, essentially. We solve a problem for them because it makes them more sustainable, um, those Australian fashion brands, and it gives us beautiful fabrics to work with at no cost. 
I, I heard that on um, uh, one on one of your talks, and I was very impressed. Yeah. I, and it's, it's one of the reasons why I, I reached out to you, aside from the uh, you helping out the refugees, uh, women, and um, the fashion industry that you are working in. And I was very impressed. It's unheard of. I'm sure it's happening around the world, but this was my first time actually for someone taking in uh, whatever is being thrown and recycling that in a way to um, impact other people's lives. So that was, it's impressive. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel it's a win-win. It's very difficult it times because we might get a beautiful fabric and decide to make a particular pattern and shape. And then we photograph it, we put it up on our website. It's available for sale. People love it. And after we sell 10 tops or 10 pants, well, the fabric's finished. So it is really, really hard to make a business model on it, to make money, in other words. But we also feel that, well, if we don't use those 10 meters of fabric, nobody will. And they will just end up in landfill. And it's our responsibility to actually use it, uh, which is what our customers understand. And sometimes, you know, maybe the photograph of the item has a particular elastic, but by the time we make it for that customer, that the elastic is finished, we're using another one. Um, so our customers understand what we stand for and want to support us. And they are really um, great in that way. That's amazing. Being an immigrant can be hard. Having been away from my home country for over 20 years has allowed me to experience these hardships firsthand. Throughout my journey, I've had a lot of challenges that were hard to bear. Juggling adjustment to a new country, obtaining my immigration papers, getting married, having children, establishing my career, and finding time for myself. Even though I've always had faith, I also relied on therapy which gave me the tools to cope with the issues life brought me. My fellow dreamers, let's remove the stigma around therapy and normalize seeking help with today's sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. Go to betterhelp.com slash pastures for 10% off your first month of therapy with BetterHelp and get matched with a therapist who will listen and help in as little as 48 hours. Do you have any section for the kids or it's just the parents, the, the women, and the, it goes over to the kids? Or it's just in, terms of, in terms of the clothes that we make? Yeah, uh, the clothes and also the program that you offer. Do you Bye. have anything for the children? So at the moment, in terms of clothes, we, it's mostly women's fashion and we have started to make some unisex uh, that work for both men and women, shirts and things like that. Um, we haven't ventured into kids' fashion because we're just worried that the costs and, and the, you know, be hard to compete. There is such a big offer um, out there. Um, in terms of the programs, most programs are, again, just for women. If women have young children, mm -hmm. then in order for them to participate in the programs, we often have set up and offer some child-minding um, services so they can come for the free training while somebody's looking after their 
young child. Um, but we have another project which is very interesting. So sometimes we are donated, say, a black cotton or a very plain fabric. We do want to use it, but we want to spark it up. So we go out and we work with schools. The next program is going to be in a primary school uh, with schools where a lot of refugees are. So they have those what's called here an intensive English center where the refugees are taught, you know, on one side they have to learn the curriculum, on the other they have to quickly learn the English to be able to keep up with the curriculum. Um, so we develop those partnerships and we do art with the students over a couple of months mm-hmm. and then engage with a pattern making um, artist, a designer and a textile artist um, who then collages this artwork and creates beautiful prints that then get either digitally or screen printed onto the fabric um, as a way to, number one, give us beautiful fabric so that black fabric suddenly has you know a print on it um two there's a story three the young refugees that have done art feel empowered and happy to see that their drawings and their art is now in our shop on beautiful textiles and then worn by lawyers and you know businesswomen whoever comes and shops and and then allows us to celebrate the skills and the creativity of the refugees. So that program often involves um, children or teenagers. What has been your favorite part of doing this for the women? Or just getting to know the women, getting to know them one by one. I know some better than others because of who they are and because of who I am. And we all have a tendency, you know, we're all humans, right? Yeah. Um, but just getting to know them and being able to be part of their journey a little bit. It's its difficult work at times because some of those stories are very heartbreaking and confronting. Sometimes I get so angry um, just hearing the stories and hearing what these women have been through. It seems incredibly unfair, um, but it's all balanced out by the fact of seeing their resilience and the smile on their faces and their ability to still get up every day and be hopeful and how much they can teach us about, yeah, not to take anything from granted and having this strength of, of going on day by day, whether, you know, your kids have been taken away from you or, what, you know, whatever. The stories, the stories are multiple and, and some are more brutal than others, mm-hmm. but the women are here they're here and they are still going on you know every day and, and and doing their best and it's so inspirational for me to see and to just be part of that journey lovely you have been around the world you have seen a lot right now what are you working on that we can support you on for your important work that you are doing Oh, thank you. Well, um, yes, I've seen I've seen a lot, um, but I must say, you know, during all my years of work before, I've seen a lot of planes and I've seen a lot of men in grey suits. Mm-hmm. I'm very happy now to be mostly working with real women and trying to make the real change happen on the ground. Not that the other work isn't important, but I think it's just great to be able to have done a bit of both. We are about to launch our annual 
challenge, which is both a fundraising event as well as an awareness campaign. And I would love to get some visibility and some attention to it. It's called Wear the Change. Ooh, and we are, okay. we're calling on women um, around the world to agree to take this challenge during Refugee Week. Refugee Week is the third week of June. And we're asking women to take the challenge by agreeing for those five working days of June to wear one item, one say one top, one ethical garment, all five days and style it in five different ways to fundraise for us. Why? Because women are always pressured about having to wear something different and something new every day. But the amount of fashion waste in the world is, you know, completely sickening. There is, I think every Australian woman is estimated to throw away 23 kilos, which is about 50 pounds of clothes every year. You know, it's just unsustainable. So we want to encourage women to feel comfortable and happy you buy something which is ethical and it's well made and hopefully something that we have made at social outfit um, and wear it for five days spend a little bit more um, love it wear it in five different ways tell your other friend and your colleagues at work that it's okay to outfit repeat and ask them while you do that to give five, 10, $15 to the campaign. It's a peer-to-peer -peer fundraising campaign and the money will support us in continuing to provide the services and the work that we do, but we'll also celebrate refugee women and start changing the attitude towards clothes, which is something we desperately need to do. I love this challenge. Um, <laughs> I, 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 as you were talking- oh, uh, as you were talking, I'm thinking, I'm like, should I wear the African wrap? Should I wear the... Uh, I'm, I'm already um, planning. Fantastic. And, you know, so many women participate and then tag us on Instagram and they put up all their outfits for the week. And it's such a celebration also. I mean, it's fun, right? Because it's fun it's to fun. It's fun. think about clothes and getting dressed up. But we have to limit how much we buy. So why don't we use our creativity to use a certain item in many different ways? Um, and then, you know, go out to the people that we know and say, look, I'm doing this challenge. It's for, to support refugees. Would you mind uh, donating, you know, x amount whatever to to my page and it's you know um with the first year we did it uh was when covid hit and we were very nervous because we thought nobody's going to work nobody's going to the office yes going to do this challenge but actually it took off because people were at home and were bored and so we had all these fantastic photos of instagram of women sitting at home putting on these outfits and and so this is going to be the third year we're going to do it um and we really hope that we will spread outside australia and getting involvement from women all over the world i'm definitely going to participate i'm already planning i think no it's it's an amazing um initiative and I mean, it's helping refugee women. Why not? It, it's a great. It's all point. outlined um, already on our website. So our website, which is thesocialoutfit.org, 
can't remember now, but there is a tab on where the change and all the information is, is provided there. Got it. So I'll have everything in the show notes um, so everybody can participate or the corporate pastures, uh, community, we can support you. I love it. It's a great initiative. Um, because you. And um, the thing is, I interviewed someone from Congo and it's our, list, it's our last episode for season two. And this just goes on together with it. Fantastic. Yes, it goes on together with it. I'm already um, (laughs) wrapping my head around. I'm like, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to dress? How are we going to (laughs) look? I love it. I love fashion. Do you feel fulfilled from all the work that you've been able to accomplish to do for others? I do. I feel very privileged to have been able, number one, to change my career. Um, you know, when I was 50, I made a, a conscious decision of saying, I need a change and I want to be in touch with women and I want to work to support women and to really build that piece in a, in a, in a grounds, um, you know, at, in the, in, at ground level. So I feel that I'm very privileged to have been able to do that because I'm aware that many women and many people in general don't have that ability to be able to choose. Uh, so I'm, I'm grateful for that. Um, but mostly I feel very grateful that I've found something that fulfills me so much. I've learned a lot along the way, which has been a great experience. But now, as I was saying, this I'm a mother as well, but I feel like I'm also a mother at work. And, and to be able to work with all these women and, and learn from them and be part of their journey makes me feel that I'm contributing something real. And, and as small as that can be, you know, just even changing some one person's life, it's, it's just incredibly rewarding. Um, that doesn't mean that I don't want to do more. I, um, I have dreams of being able not to do it myself, but of being able to inspire others to set up organizations similar to the social outfit in other countries. You know, coming back to home, if I think about Italy and the number of refugees that arrive, but also the opportunity for manufacturing fashion in a country like Italy and the amount of fashion waste that there would be. It's on a scale, it's so much greater than Australia. So, you know, I would love to be able to inspire and help someone to set up a social outfit outside Milano or outside Paris or in London, you know, so that we can, I just want to prove that the model works here and then just set the seeds for more. Um, yeah, that's that's my dream. I see that happening. We have some uh, pockets of listeners in France and pockets of listeners in Italy. Please reach out. <laughs> I think it's a great initiative. And I can imagine the, the fashion, you know, home of France and Italy. It's great all the ways yep. that they have that would be so uh, beneficial to your initiative I love it yeah I would hope that you know you just can't plant some seeds and then things things might um, might happen it, it takes a lot of work it's not you know it's not easy it's every day is very very busy and there are many different challenges um, but there are challenges for everyone everywhere so this at least helps helps make things a little bit better Thank you for what you're doing for others. Um, it's 
I can't imagine it's easy. Like anything in life, any everything has challenges. For you waking up every single day and showing up for these women, I applaud you. And it's truly the main reason when I heard your story, talking about it, about you helping refugee women, I was like, I need to sit down with her. And it's something that I'm passionate about as well, helping women. And if somebody is coming from a country where they've been tortured, they've been in so much pain all their lives, and then you're giving them that light, that there is hope for tomorrow. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm very, I, I'm very lucky to be able to do this. And um, yeah. Yeah. Um, last question. Have you found your concrete pastures? I think so. I think social outfit is my concrete pasture. Oh, I think so too. Uh, <laughs> this has been an amazing conversation. I appreciate you for giving us your time, for honoring us with a little bit of your story and for honoring us with your initiative and what you're doing for others. And uh, yes, thank you so much. Pleasure is all mine. And thank you for, you know, featuring us and wanting to hear the story. And it means a lot to be able to reach, um, you know, other people with what we're doing and hopefully get some support in whatever way that might, might, might be or just even inspire others to do similar work. Yes. No, thank you. And um, it's afternoon. How can we follow you on social media? Uh, or websites, whatever uh, social media tags that you have. How can we follow you? Yes, thank you for that question. So we are on Instagram and on Facebook, and it's in both places. It's just at the social outfit, and our website is thesocialoutfit.org because we are an organization. We are a registered charity in Australia. We provide tax deductibility and all of that, but obviously to Australian uh, residents who report to the government. So it's all, you know, we are a proper uh, charitable organization. Lovely. I'll have everything again in the show notes so we can all follow and subscribe, tag, and go to the websites as well and support. Thank you so much. And feel free to comment on our Instagram. Let us know what you think of the clothes. Um, Yes, we look look forward to some feedback. Thank you so much. Have a great day. (laughs) Thank you. Enjoy your day. That's it for this episode. Thank you again for lending us your ears. It's truly an honor to save each and every dreamer. You can continue to support us by liking, sharing, and following us on our social media pages. The links are all in the show notes. We have so many exciting projects and ventures in store for you. Until next time, keep dreaming.